Hi there, and welcome to the Nerds of Business podcast. My name is Darren Moffat. I'm a director at WebBuzz, the growth marketing agency, and I'm your host. It's great to have you with us for episode three of the product development series. Now, if you're new to this podcast, our mission is to help entrepreneurs crack the code to growth in their own venture. And we do it by solving the key challenges that all businesses must overcome one problem at a time. In the previous episode, we looked at the challenge of product validation. But what happens once you've successfully validated your idea? How do you begin to take that raw concept into an actual thing that people can buy? I think it's fair to say that most entrepreneurs wing it during this stage. There's often a lot of trial and error. It's not uncommon for startup founders to essentially will their product idea into existence with a mix of hope, fear and determination. But you might be surprised, maybe even relieved, to learn that it doesn't have to be this way. There are established planning methods and principles which you can use to both speed up the development process and reduce your risk of failure. The tech industry is traditionally very strong on this, and there's a strong argument to make that it's a big reason why giants such as Apple, Facebook and Amazon have grown so rapidly. But as you're about to hear in our opening story, even the biggest tech brands in the world can still get it horribly wrong. The year is 2010 and Google, already famous for its search engine algorithm, takes a bold leap into the future. It launches Google X, a secretive research facility devoted to futuristic product development. It's located deep within a secure compound at the Googleplex in Mountain View, California. And one of their first projects is the creation of a new piece of wearable technology called Google Glass. Although it resembles a standard pair of reading glasses, Google Glass includes a camera, a touchpad, and a small display unit embedded in the lens itself. Wearers can access the web, read messages, and even record what they are seeing with the built-in camera. It delivers an augmented reality experience reminiscent of the famous Tom Cruise film Minority Report. By 2011, Google has developed a prototype that weighs 3.6 kilograms. But just one year later, the design has been iterated and refined to such an extent that it now weighs less than a normal pair of sunglasses. In 2013, Google offer a limited release of the product to Google I.O. developers. The publicity and hype is building nicely when later in that year, Google invite 8,000 early adopters they call Glass Explorers to purchase the first commercially available Google Glasses for a cool $1,500 per pair. But soon trouble strikes. Google encounters a raft of unanticipated problems stemming from concerns about privacy and safety. On July 31, 2013, it's reported that driving while wearing Google Glass will be banned in the UK. The Department of Transport deem it a careless driving offence. In February 2014, a woman wearing Google Glass claims she was verbally and physically assaulted at a bar in San Francisco after a patron confronted her while she was showing off the device. 
Witnesses suggested that patrons were upset over the possibility of being recorded. Negative sentiment continues to build and demand amongst the general public never really takes off. By 2015, Google halts the production of Google Glass. It's a rare misstep by the Google juggernaut, which goes to show that even a great idea with almost limitless funding can fail with poor product planning. Now, there are actually many different theories out there as to why Google Glass failed. On the one hand, some speculate that although the cool factor resonated with the initial early adopter cohort, the product just didn't really solve any particular problem in a meaningful way for the wider population or the average person. Others suggest that the hefty price tag and the unusual visual appearance were always going to be a friction point to scale. Now, there's probably some truth in each of those, but the theory I subscribe to is that the timing was simply wrong. They might have just been a bit too early. I think it's very possible that if the product was being released this decade, or maybe the next one, more people would have been ready for it. Unfortunately for Google, they probably didn't get out and talk to enough real people in order to sufficiently plan for the product release. Regardless of the industry in which you operate, if you're launching a new product or service, planning is super important. So what can you do in the planning phase to ensure that the thing you're putting your heart and soul into will become a product people actually want to buy? I love data. I I love kind of looking through the data. You need to have systems, you need to have structure. You're going to get chopped to pieces. Enthusiasm is unstoppable. We kind of hit a point where we were like, we need another lever. Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and richer than you. (laughs) This is Nerds of Business. We'll start the show in a minute, but first, a word from our sponsor. Hi everyone, it's Ben Carew here. I'm a director at WebBuzz, the growth marketing agency. I work alongside the host of this podcast, Darren Moffat. If you're a business owner who wants to grow, but you don't have the spare funds to invest in marketing right now, you're not alone. Since COVID hit, we've noticed more clients suspending campaigns or delaying their marketing altogether due to cash flow issues. In response to this, we developed a solution called Buy Now, Pay Later Digital Marketing. It provides eligible small businesses with nothing to pay on SEO, digital marketing and website development for up to three months. We think it's perfect for entrepreneurs who need a helping hand getting sales flowing again. I'll be back later in the show to explain how it works, but if you can't wait, you can download a free info pack now at webbuzz.com.au slash bnpl. That stands for Buy Now, Pay Later. That's webbuzz.com.au slash bnpl. So the title of today's episode and the problem we're trying to solve is product planning. How to develop your idea into a real thing people can actually buy. It's a fascinating question and we've got some very nerdy guests on the show today to help you get some answers. You'll hear from the chief product designer at a fintech who reveals the approach they're using to steal Gen Y and millennial customers from the big banks. And we also speak with the founder of a HR platform for small business with 300,000 users. He shares how 
product planning helps to scale his business. As you might have gleaned from our opening story, this episode does have a strong tech theme, but the principles discussed are universal to all businesses. So stick around because there's so much to learn here for all entrepreneurs, especially from our two product design experts. But first, here's just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying Nerds of Business, to please hit the subscribe button on your podcast player. It means you'll automatically receive each new episode every fortnight, and it makes it easier for us to stay in touch. I think if you asked most people what product planning is, they might have some vague notion of a checklist of things to do before you're ready to release to the market. And to some extent, that's right. But according to the experts, the planning phase is so much more than that. So this this is what I call the strategy phase. This okay. this is this is the DNA of, of of my role within Pollen is working with our clients and helping to define the strategy and the the well, some people call it the product market fit. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. So there's there's three core concepts that I use with all of our clients, and those those if you think about them as as a Venn diagram of three circles, mm-hmm. my favorite illustration. Three circles. One's called business context. One's called customer perspective. And one's called externalities. It's a funny word, but I'll unpack that for you That's in a moment. Well, that, that really is nerdy. I don't. I don't think I'm fairly well read, but I don't think I know. I know the uh, the meaning of that word. Please, please do share. Yeah. So externalities are basically everything that's out of our control. They're the external forces that influence our product. Okay. So when we're unpacking externalities, we're doing market research. We're looking at competitors. We're looking at what makes them unique, so that we can work at how we differentiate our product. Okay. We're also looking at things like tech trends. We spend a lot of time looking and really nerding out over things like personalization algorithms and people's expectations about intelligent recommendations. So this is when we're getting into some of the more powerful aspects of technology that we can tap into to deliver these experiences. Mm-hmm. And until we really understand all of those externalities, mm-hmm. um, it's very hard to shape up the strategy of a product. The other two bubbles on my Venn diagram, one being business context, yep. is understanding as, from a business lens what it is we really want to um, achieve in terms of financial outcomes, how we're getting our funding, who are our partners in this venture, um, what technology choices should we leverage. So all the kind of aspects that we can control and that affect our business decisions um, need to be considered in the strategy of a product. And then lastly, the the final bubble is the the customer perspective. Mm -hmm. That's a really important piece as as, as user-centred design. Um, It's about understanding who the users are, their pains, their gains, their behaviours, um, Look, thinking about the types of benefits we want to create. So that's really where we get into the customer mindset mm-hmm. and understanding. Is that the intersection of those three elements? So our customer needs, our business needs, and then broader market forces. Only then do we have a complete picture and at the highlight Venn diagram is really where our strategic directions lie. That's Ross Gales, Director of Design and Strategy at Sydney Agency Pollen. Ross has designed product solutions for some of the biggest brands in Australia, including Gumtree, which is owned by global giant eBay. Ross is one of our two product design experts for this series. I also asked him why this stage is so important for product development. This is the phase for me that starts to define all the problems that we want to solve and it also defines what our product offering could become. One of the things I talk a lot about is diffusing and differentiating. Mm -hmm. 
So two key aspects of any new product is how do you diffuse any competitive threats? So um, come back to the jobs to be done framework. People can get jobs done in many, many ways um, and there's lots of people out there already doing them. So how are you going to diffuse those threats and make your product better by differentiating? So it's the two balancing acts. And and I talk about ruthless prioritisation when it comes to to building a product. It's, It's There's so many options of things too many problems to solve sometimes and can feel quite overwhelming. Yep. So to ruthlessly prioritise what do we need to diffuse and how much do we need to do to differentiate is a really simple way of thinking about refining the brief and targeting just the right amount of effort in a lean way to ensure that we're delivering a product that meets the customer needs. Yep. So this stage really is kind of where the, to use the, the cliche, it's kind of like where the the rubber hits the road, and 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 uh, these you 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 know you've you've got the idea, you've hopefully validated it. Now you're really starting to put it all the pieces together and see, can this work? Can we make money out of this? Can can we achieve the objective we want to achieve? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's it. It's really about ensuring that we're we're getting the right business outcomes balanced with the right customer outcomes. Because remember, without delivering value to our customers, the business outcomes won't come. So I often talk about the creation of value first mm-hmm. and ensuring we're solving the right customer problems and then we can work out how we're going to monetize that. And side question here, how long does this part of the process typically take in a client engagement? Like you're working for a, you know, one of your clients, how long would this, this bit take? Look, it can be anywhere from two weeks to two months is, is typically what I say. And it depends on the size of the business, the size of the market you're trying to move into and how many user groups you're trying to service. We can go lean and we can make a lot of assumptions, yep. which is sometimes okay. We always advocate for doing um, proper research with customers up front to better understand their needs. We never want to jump in and assume what customer pain points are. Um, but we, we can certainly um, take a cursory look at the market, um, understand the competitors, Sometimes we go global and we look at global competitors. We look at uh, relation. Uh, we look at industries that are relevant that we can learn from as well. So it's about collecting all those inspirations and insights. So you can go down rabbit holes. These things can take two months of, of research if you really want to do it properly. Yeah. But that's not that's not what a small business can afford. They yeah, don't, they don't want to do that. So yeah, yeah. so you do have to to jump off the cliff a little bit, so to speak. Yeah. You need to to take the risk. And, and, and make some assumptions to get to get the ball rolling. But you should always be collecting insights. Even if you do it yourself, you should be looking at your competitors, looking at relevant markets, you know, talking to your users wherever possible. Um, it's just something that should be an ongoing process of discovery that, that never ends. So this is more of a personal question, again, without notice. I mean, you know, I'm obviously a, a director of a, of a marketing agency. I find that uh, in spite of my best efforts, sometimes... In my personal time, client work invades my brain and I'm thinking, you know, the solution strikes me, you know. It's like, or it just, I cannot stop thinking about a particular client or project. It's quite annoying, but often that is when the best solutions or ideas come. Does that happen to you? Like, do you, do you I mean, you know, you, you must be thinking about this kind of stuff all the time. Is it hard to kind of block that out of your personal time? Yeah, look, it is, and, and, and I'm 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 um, I'm a big researcher myself in terms of always looking for the latest trends, always yep. looking at and and thinking about um, even when using another company's app, what can I learn to take to my other clients, and 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 
what will benefit the broader relationships that I have with my clients. Mm. So it really is um, it's it's quite quite time consuming always yep. being on like that um, and looking at for market insights, customer behaviours. Um, yeah, always looking for potential in, 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 in what, how we can take insights and apply them to solving problems. And Ross was also our first guest this series to be strapped in for a ride on the Nerdometer. Check this out. So, Ross, um, a segment that we put all of our guests through here on Nerds of Business is the famous... The Nerdometer. It's the Nerdometer and... Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on the, on the on the sound effect there for the Nerdometer? Does that does that sound like a chainsaw? or Does it sound like a nineteen fifty eight moped? From I'm definitely revving up the chainsaw on that one. I'm ready to go on this one. <laughs> oh right, okay. Because I, I seriously was aiming for the moped kind of scooter sound, but I, I did have another guest on the other day who said, "No, that sounds like a chainsaw." So I might have to change the sample. But um, I'll stick with it. I like it. <laughs> but look, this is the Nerdometer. Very simple. Um, uh, proposition, and we, you know, we simply sort of ask you to self-rate yourself uh, for nerdiness. Again, as it, as it sort of relates to what you do, which is product design and strategy, uh, design thinking. I reckon you're pretty nerdy, Ross. I mean, what do you give yourself out of ten? Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm right up there. I think I'm probably a ten or eleven, to be honest. It- oh wow! You, you've literally broken the nerdometer, like. We love it when that happens here at Nerds of Business. Yeah, so very nerdy. Um, and look, you know, here's another sort of related question. If you weren't doing what you do now, what would you be doing? Oh, look, that's a really good question. I think about that quite a bit. It's really, at the core of it, I'm, I'm, I'm really actually more of a craftsman. I like to, I like making things and I like solving problems. Um, yeah, design and design in general is, is all about problem solving. Yep. Um, but I like uh, moving out of the digital space. If I wasn't building websites and products and services, um, I'd be making furniture. I'm actually quite crafty with my hands. Oh, you're handy. Yeah, and I like I like getting in the workshop and, and, and designing and making my own furniture. Wow. And, and it's something that uh, as, a, as a little side hustle, but also as a, as, as a passion of mine is, is yep. something that I really love doing. And it's, 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 it's just getting... Uh, getting solving the same problems, the physicality but with, of it, though. but with a different medium. Yeah, yeah that's right. Mm. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! So earlier, Ross gave us a great summary of what product planning is and why it's so important. For a bit more detail on the key steps that entrepreneurs can implement in their own product development, I spoke with the second of our two product design experts. Carrie Peters is product design principal at Sydney agency Us2, originally from Oregon via New York, where she designed for the likes of Nike and ClassPass. She's now a leading exponent of human-centered design. Have a listen to what she's got to say about the product planning phase. So even, uh, like we were saying earlier, even the most brilliant of products and services, um, they don't really go on to live in a perfect world silo. Um, So... What we need to do is we need to um, simulate that that world with um, different environments, other products, other services, and make sure that it's not all going to turn upside down once we get it out there. Planning for these real-world contexts and realities in a discovery phase is how that we make sure um, our babies are ready for the world and they won't fall on their faces when, they, when we launch them. So in this phase, what you want to do... Um, a few things. You want to understand who wants the thing. So who are your people? Um, there's a few different things you can do. You can do uh, one of the key things that we do within that phase is obviously the initial uh, research, and then we do empathy mapping. So we try to understand what people's pains, 
um, what the jobs they need to, to get done are, what gains they could potentially have in a situation. Mm-hmm. We call that empathy mapping. Um, a fantastic term. It is good. Um, there's also just understanding generally how people would n- interact with the thing. Um, so doing the usability testing once you have it designed, um, any form of qualitative research. Understanding the landscape that the thing will live in. So that's kind of your um, competitive analysis, looking seeing what other products or services are out there already doing that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing if there's a, a, a sort of niche that's overlooked that you can kind of slide into and, and um, solve. Getting clear on what your thing does and doesn't do, and this is directly obviously connected to that competitive analysis. You don't want to be the thing that tries to do everything for everyone and end up doing nothing for anyone. Mm-hmm. You, want to, you want to find a specific thing for a specific set of people and a specific problem. Um, that's generally how the best products start. And so then, going narrow rather than wide. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you can even relate it back to like being a human. If you just walk around in the world and try to get everyone to like you, no one will like you because you're just, you know. You're obsequious. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. And and I think but if you if you have those few people that, you know, you care about and you want to make happy, you can kind of shape your life to be something that, that mirrors the community that you're living in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you think about a product as a living, breathing thing, you want your product to do the same thing. You want it to have a relationship with a few people that you are – building it for and if there's people that don't like it that's fine it's not for them you don't want them to buy it um Mm -hmm. you want your product to be to be very valuable to a few people yep the right people so it's more about depth rather than breadth Mm -hmm. yeah eventually products often i mean a good product will then branch out of course i mean a good product products do branch out um, Facebook is a good example of a product that started out super niche. It was just for like mm. kids at one Ivy League school, right, to just check each other's pictures out. And um, and now it's kind of for everyone and every everything. And it's obviously turned into a pretty mediocre product. Mm. Um, yeah, well, that's a, that's a complaint, isn't it? You know, that particularly people who care about design and who are in, in tech and so on, you'll often find a lot of those real innovators. Uh, either not on Facebook or they're just barely there and they, they don't go to it very often at all. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in a couple of things you said then. So mm. in this product planning phase, you're obviously, you know, by this stage you've validated the idea, you you know, it, it's, mm. it's a good idea mm-hmm. and you're, ne- you're now starting to plan for its life in the real world, mm. okay, as you said. Mm-hmm. How often in this phase mm-hmm. does the product change? So how often, you know, will we'll yep. some of what you find really push it into a different direction? Mm-hmm. Um, so a good product never stops changing, ever. You should oh. constantly be feedbacking and changing and tweaking things. That's the whole reason um, that analytics within a digital product are so valuable is they're literally – it's the it's – the, um, the traces of what people want and what they're doing and, and signaling to you what – what isn't isn't valuable and you absolutely if you see that there's like a feature or something that's not being used at all don't spend the time and the resources keeping that thing alive if people don't want it just cut it off um but at the same time sometimes you'll see people doing certain things within your product that you had no idea they were going to do and the the best thing that you can do the smartest thing you can do is follow that and build the thing that they're trying to do because a lot of times people create these funny little hacks that um, you didn't see coming, and if you if you're um, 
observant enough, you can see that and then you'll create this feature that they wanted all along and you'll become that thing they can't walk away from. So it should change constantly. It should be a living, breathing, changing thing. And is that when you're designing a product, are Mm -hmm. you designing it with some degree of flex sort of built in, you know, like so that you've got, okay, you've got a core, these are core elements of the product, you know, Mm -hmm. but we want this flexibility, this so uh, sort of inherent or baked into it yep. so that we can have that yep. dynamic response to that's changing exactly environments. Right. Yep. yep. So that's, I mean, that's a, the core of what agile is. So agile, the whole idea or like an MVP is that you've kind of, you've got this, this sort of um, story map um, that you build out of, of all the different phases of value that you can provide um, mm-hmm. a user or a customer. And, but at each one of those stages, there's many different levels of fidelity that you could create. So even take something like a sign-up moment for a customer. There, You can literally just be like, do you want into the club? High five, you're into the club. Um, you can choose not to actually have them sign up at all. They can just download the app and that's it. Or you can have a 10-step onboarding and send them a, a welcome to the club pack. You know what I mean? So that's it's the same moment in time, but there's many levels of fidelity that you can create of experience that you can create for that person. So the idea is if you can create one single like thin line of experience across the whole thing, then you can kind of build up different fidelities of each of those moments um, over time. And if you realize that like this one doesn't need any more, you just leave it at the kind of like basic level. Um, that's great. That means you didn't build out, you don't build out like the most robust version of everything from the beginning. You build out just enough and then, yeah, you can flex it. You can flex it up. You can flex it down. If you decide something needs another couple of layers of something or, um, yeah, that's kind of the the essence of agile. So I just inadvertently sort of discovered or created agile myself. Like I just stumbled across it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good Uh, job. There you go. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> no, it's good though. I mean, genius no, lives here. Yeah. I, I think too though. It's it's good to know that the reason that agile came about is that what um, the term waterfall. I don't know if you know that term, but waterfall is kind of how development used to work with within design and dev. And you design, and I used to do this. It, it wasn't that long ago, but you would design um, the whole app, yeah. and you would annotate every single thing and everything that everything would do, and then you'd hand over literally this annotated um, wireframe deck to the developers and be like, make this thing. And then they would spend hundreds and hundreds of hours peering through all your little tiny side notes and whatnot and trying to make this this whole thing. And meanwhile, in the background, if you did any user testing, you would find out that one of those things that you had annotated in some way was actually not quite right and it actually needed to be slightly different. But it's too late. You've written it down. The engineers have already spent hundreds of hours on it. It's too expensive to turn around now. So the idea is if you can bite off little chunks at a time, you can turn that ship around before it gets too too far down the track. So the moral of that story is don't go chasing waterfalls. Hey? Don't go chasing waterfalls. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist Cue the it. soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will. I'll, I'll drop that in later. Good. Um, okay, so now it's time to jump out of the theory and into some real-life business case studies. Anson Parker is the head of product at UP. That's up.com.au. They're a next-generation Australian digital bank. Up describes itself as a clever way to organise your money and simplify your life, giving you the freedom to do the things you love. Now, amongst the growing neobank scene here in Australia, Up were the first to launch in October 2018, and they've already amassed 250,000 very happy customers. 
In fact, they're so popular that they even sell out of their very cool branded merchandise, which has to be a first for, for any bank ever. Uh, Anton is the product visionary behind Up. He has a long track record in delivering um, exceptional products, most recently working with technology startups in Australia and San Francisco after stints at News Limited and Optus. I asked him to explain his approach to product planning. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, up as sort of a, we, we lack a lot of kind of formal process. We are, um, I guess we're great executors. Our, our greatest strength is being able to, to execute quickly. Um, and, and because of that, we often uh, uh, prefer to, to kind of, uh, I guess, test ideas as quickly as possible with real customers, right? And and you'll see that on up. There's a lot of, uh, there's, a, there's a really fast pace of, of, of kind of uh, of features going from sort of the ideation stage into customers' hands, um, and so look, we, I think when you if you broke down a sort of a typical day and, and looked at how we thought about features, you would probably recognise sort of like a Kano model style thing. We'll we'll look at what do we what do we have to have to be a bank, you know, um, uh, and but but we really pair that with I think sort of a, an innovation mindset, you know, from my point of view. As kind of the the person who really sets what we work on. Like I'm not happy if we don't have kind of one bet like that we're working on at, at any one time. Something that we're working on, we don't know whether it's going to work or not. Um, but if it does work and it and it works well, it could be huge. It could be transformational. You know, I think life's a lot more exciting when you can uh, have those bets going, right? Like, cause you just don't, you, I might wake up tomorrow and this game might've completely changed from this feature. Yeah. So um, to your point about stuff that's, uh, been a success already maybe just give us a little bit more detail or some some uh, concrete examples on on what has worked so far at up yeah i mean i I guess the like the core sort of premise of up in some ways is if we can make your banking really engaging um you know both from an experience point of view like it's an app that's just super easy to get into and it's really it, it displays the information in a really pleasing understandable way um and if we can make elements of it even fun right if we can really succeed at that you know i think um you know like a Part of, part of that for us was, for example, just making the display of information really clear and readable. And for us, that meant, like, let's just get rid of sense. Like, sense are kind of this annoying noise on the end of every, you know, every transaction. That just adds this kind of visual clutter. Like, it's people's money. Like, we're not going to round the sense off and, and, and take the money from you. But if we could find a way to make every transaction just an even dollar amount, then that's going to be a much nicer... Uh, screen to look at and and hopefully stay engaged with. So from day one, we had this uh, idea of roundup so that if you did spend $3.50 or $4.50 probably these days on a coffee, then it would just appear as $5. We could take that 50 cents and put it into a savings account for you um, and then give you this really beautiful, clean uh, experience in the app where everything was around dollar amount. Um, but the one thing that always thwarted us was the account balance, right? Your account balance was always had these cents. And so we were like, how do we, how do we get rid of the cents on the account balance? And we always had this idea, like, could we have this way where you can, you know, like long press the cents and send them away or, or do something. Um, and that kind of morphed into this feature that ended up being called pull to save where, um, at, at a point in time, we got our technology to the point where we customers didn't need to refresh anymore to see like the latest updates. So we just push push out to the to the apps, and we realized that pull to refresh pattern. We could reuse that, and instead of 
reloading the screen, it would flick the sense, like tossing a coin almost off the screen and be this really kind of fun, delightful experience. And so that was kind of the, the genesis of that feature idea. And it really just came back to giving people this really you know, fun and lighthearted, uh, but engaging view of their finances. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, um, your banking is obviously it's got a reputation as being stayed and terrible, uh, product are clunky and all the rest of it. So you're reimagining that for a younger audience. I mean, is your core, when you're planning products, are you looking at a um, what, time of, what type of sort of user persona, by persona are you considering here? Yeah, I mean, I think we would probably say like uh, we're all about, you know, like psychometrics. Uh, is, that, is that what that's psychometrics, not demographics? Like it's like it's about your state of mind more than your age. But but I think certainly um, it's about being open minded in the way that you um, uh, uh, you know talk to your bank or, or understand your money. I think that yeah, and I mean you know you you touched on that difference between demographics and psychographics, right? So here's my take on it, just so people can get a bit more of a visual picture. Okay, um, and Anton. Please correct me if I'm if I'm going down the wrong track, okay? But from a demographic point of view, it seems to me it it's aiming more at uh, sort of uh, Gen Z and millennials, and you know, there's a really clever use of uh, emojis. You know, people can, for instance, um, you know, set up a little um, savings uh, plan within the app. They can name it uh, like a goal, for instance, if they want a holiday or. Um, Obviously, no one's going to Bali anymore, but, you know, they, they could have put some sort of holiday emoji or something next to it, you know. So there's there's that from perhaps that demographic angle. But from a psychographic angle, the focus on really great design and UX and almost an aesthetic of irony and cool, um, I, I, when I was really first looking at the site, it was really striking me that, you know, people in Fitzroy or Newtown would really dig this bank. So, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good summation. Um, you know, from a product point of view, I mean, we our focus today is uh, spending and saving. We don't have credit cards or or mortgages today. So, typically, uh, you know, when you're in your 30s and 40s, you might be after those kind of financial services. So, mm-hmm. I think that alone will mean you know up up as sort of a an all encompassing. Uh, bank for you is going to work best if you are in that younger age. Yeah. Um, and we see, you know, I'm happy to share that I think our median age is about 24. So half of our customer base is in that 16 to 24 uh, demographic, about 80% under 35. Wow. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, again, from a product point of view, I, I mean, I, I sort of, that, that to some extent obviously reflects the offering, but it also means that we can sort of grow with our customer base. Um, and, you know, the, the banking is this very mature industry, right? Like the banks have been around for hundreds of years. Uh, they all pretty much do everything that most people can think of today that they need from a bank. And so when you're coming into that with an agile mindset and minimum viable product, it's really difficult because the people's expectations is, is, is everything. I mean, what, one thing that we, we typically uh, try and keep a good eye on is, you know, like is let's put the financial products aside and, and try and understand what what are people actually trying to achieve here, um, and where are they in life, and and, and what are their sort of short term and longer term goals, and how does this thing all sort of connect together? Um, and, and you know, like the classic, you know, people say these kind of cliches all the time, like uh, you know, like like people don't want a mortgage, they want a home, and stuff like that. But I mean, th- there's an element of truth to that, right? Like people don't 
you know, people are, they do want a home and they don't necessarily, no one wants a mortgage. But, but I mean, that, that, that kind of journey doesn't start at uh, applying for a mortgage, right? It starts a lot earlier than that and probably yep. saving for a home deposit and, and trying to understand where you want to live and what kind of house you want to live in. Um, so typically we'll try and try and map those customer journeys, I guess, that's uh, and understand like what, what can we do to help more in the early stages? Um, and, you know, what are the ways... I guess we're very conscious that, uh, you know, that there is this kind of barrier to understanding that exists in banking and, and it's typically it's called financial literacy, um, but it's also just understanding banking jargon and, and sort of a lot of stuff in finance is sort of opaque. I mean, we products come with these huge booklets of very small type uh, with fees and charges. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a, an easy to understand space, um, I don't think, for most people and like, you don't really understand how buying a house works until you go through the experience yourself and, and you start to get a sense at that point. So you know, it's kind of like, what can we, do we have to use this certain language? But how, what are ways we can help, um, I guess, more directly connect to how people think about this than how bankers want to talk about it? Well, no, that's great. And I mean, um, I, I think something our listeners might be interested here so on that particular topic regarding customer journeys from a practical perspective, like how do you guys kind of map that? You know, like so, what tools are you using to map it? Um, you know, what does it look like if you, you know, taking that example of that that young millennial, for instance, who maybe in your up app has set up a, a savings goal, yeah, to save for a um, a home deposit. They put a little emoji in there. Um, you know, they're they're into that phase. Um, yeah. You know. What, Maybe step us through that. Uh, you know, like what, what, what? How do you, how do you map that visually? Map that journey from there, all the way through to actually potentially buying a house or getting ready for a mortgage. Yeah, well, we we typically use just a, a whole range of of, of tools. And, uh, like we were a really big 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 company of whiteboarders there for okay. until yeah, until yeah. COVID. Yeah, I think we've we've suffered a bit. Uh, everyone suffered a lot, but but not having the whiteboard to. Ju- to jump around and sketch stuff out is tough, right? But, um, you know, we we do have, you know, just oodles of data, right? We have too much data. We have, um, you know, that's just the nature of a digital business where everything your customers do is digital. As um, you have that understanding, you don't have to go and necessarily, like like to your point about savings, you don't necessarily have to ask what people's goals are because they're, they're mapped out in the application. Um, uh, you know, there's interpretation of that data, like, we we might think uh, you know thirty thousand customers want to buy airplanes, but they they may actually just want to go on a holiday and they've used the airplane emoji. That is probably more realistic. Um, but we also we will understand the data. We will pull out the right sort of data. You know sometimes we'll prototype even prototype stuff and on mobile or in um, on, on web just to get a feel for how something's going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but there's, yeah, I, I think it's sort of a combination of those things. Of uh, We do a lot of wireframing. Figma is a fantastic tool that's, um, you know, that's particularly when you do wireframe. Oh, there we go. There we go. You've, 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 got, you've got the nerd bot going again. She's, um, yeah. she's woken up a wireframe. So uh, uh, maybe uh, just to sort of explain that, that concept to people. Yeah. So like a, a wireframe is kind of a way to, an abbreviation, I guess, of, of, of describing a, an experience uh, like in an app, for example, uh, without going to the effort of having to design all of those screens. It's kind of a very low, low fi, low fidelity, we'd call it, way to just kind of map out 
you can do them, you can do a wireframe with uh, like a marker on a whiteboard or a piece of paper, or you can use like a, a piece of software, but you're not trying to sort of do highly resolved um, designs. And that means you can do it much faster, right? It's like so you a can sketch. I mean, it's essentially, it it, yeah, it's like a, it's like a sketch. It's, 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 yeah. it's, it's a, it's a rough mock-up or, or, or sketch of um, schematic of, of, of what you ultimately want to produce. Yeah. If you've ever run a business, you'll know that managing employees and staff is often the hardest part of all. Well, our next guest is the founder of a software company that is rapidly making that problem disappear. Ben Thompson is the founder of Employment Hero, a complete people, payroll and benefit solution for small to medium-sized businesses. Apparently, Employment Hero can reduce admin time in your HR function by up to 80%. Employment Hero has over 5,000 paying businesses and collectively manages over 300,000 employees. Ben himself is a seasoned entrepreneur and investor. And in the chat you're about to hear, he shares some really useful insights into the internal processes his team use for their product development. Yeah, so um, I'm not the engineering type. Uh, I love technology, but... um, I'm not good at math, so I'm not an engineer. Um, but my co-founder, Dave Tong, is brilliant and a great engineer and, and very disciplined in his data-driven way of thinking. So I think what we've got is a great blend of, of entrepreneurial gut instinct and engineering intelligence. And, and the way that that came together at the start of the business was I stood in my office at a whiteboard and mapped out my vision for what Employment Hero could deliver or should deliver mm-hmm. and brought Dave in to the, you know, to the team at that point and said, mate, this is what I want to build. It's all up on the whiteboard. And we still refer to it to this day. Dave, Dave will say, you know, um, we've, we've got to do X. You know, it, it was on the whiteboard. And this is going back six, seven years. Wow. Um, we still haven't got to that. Yep. But in between those big elements of what we're building mm-hmm. – um, he and, and the whole team and, and even now to me to, some, to, a, to a large extent take that very sort of lean startup methodology to experimentation and incremental improvements around ideas and, and particular features um, to make sure that we're delivering what the customer needs. But um, ultimately most of our decisions and most of our product roadmap has been driven by first principles. Going back to that first realisation... of companies on the planet need help being great employers and employees want more from employment. They want, you know, it's where they get their wealth from. It's where they get their sense of purpose from. They want more from employment. So how can we design a platform that makes employment easy for employers and makes being an employee um, easier and better and more rewarding than it would otherwise be? And and it's that first principles thinking that drives 90% of of our product roadmap. Great. And you, you've mentioned Dave, your co-founder. How did you guys come together? I mean, um, because, did, you know, there'd be a lot of people listening to this podcast who have an idea for a business, they're an entrepreneur, but they're not tech savvy or uh, they're not skilled in technology. Um, you know, was there an introduction? Did you happen to know him already? Like, what was? how did you guys meet and come no, together? No, it was very, very normal in that I, I recruited him. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So I, um, I had used an agency for uh, an external agency to do first iterations and prototypes and mm-hmm. some sort of early roadmap stuff. Um, 
And then I got to a point where I was like, I don't want external agency driving this. I want it all in. I want to bring it internal. And I just had to recruit somebody who was a great engineer. I used a um, a guy, Steve, forgetting his surname now. It's going back quite a long time. Who who you know lined up five or six great candidates, and Dave walked in. We sat down, spoke for a couple of hours, and um, and I was sold. I thought he was a good guy, and he, he's proven to be an incredible guy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. And so you mentioned, you know, lean, you know, lean methodologies, and um, a moment ago, uh, when it comes to validating, you know, the the product or a feature, you know, I mean, you guys are obviously now fairly mature business, you're in scale up phase, so you're out of the startup mode. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about how you how you validate an idea or a feature. An idea for me, it that it's back to that first principles thing. So I. And this is where if, if we had Dave and I at the table, there'd be completely different, um, same outcome, but a completely different approach. But, yep. you know, again, mine is first principles. So um, let's just look at what's happened over the last six months with remote work. We know that 75% of employees want to continue working remotely. They enjoy not having to commute. They enjoy more time with their families. Um, and we know that employers want the access to the best talent. Um, on the planet to be the you know that's the, the secret to being great is to find good people like Dave Tong um, therefore how do we help businesses find remote talent in new and better ways than ever before that's that's the genesis of an idea that that has some sort of first principles yep. behind it and 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 so where so in that case we're about to launch what we're what we're calling our global teams solution which gives us the ability to employ people remotely on behalf of other businesses in 54 countries around the world. So that's going live next Monday. And, um, and, and the, the other first principle behind that is that, you know, I stopped and thought about, well, if I'm a small business and I want to employ remote talent, it's really hard. Like if I just, even within Australia, if I wanted to employ somebody in another state, mm-hmm. I have to set up a, a separate workers' compensation insurance policy. I have to start paying work uh, payroll tax in another state. I have to start managing different public holidays. Um, you know, it's not just easy. Yep. It, it takes a lot of effort. And then if I was thinking, well, how do I get somebody in another country? Forget it. Mm-hmm. So if we want small business owners to feel confident about employing in the best possible ways, then we have to actually lay out the rails for them to do that. And and so that's that's where I, that's the way I come to these decisions. Dave will will look at that same thing and say, okay, well, I get where Ben's coming from here, but how do I develop the product to deliver on that? And then he'll take the engineering approach to, well, what's the best UI? What's the best UX? Um, what's the best um, infrastructure? You know, we've had to... Um, now that we're international, we've had to completely rebuild our infrastructure to you know, remove latency in the product. Yep. So there's all sorts, you know, there's just different ways to cut the cloth, really. And do you do um, a lot of, um, you know, user testing and, and um, user feedback? How, how much of that plays a role in your product development? Lots at the at the feature level. Yes. So lots of closed beta, so lots of um, customer interviews initially and closed beta testing and open beta testing, then, then you know, full. That's full. nerdy. Now, that's pretty nerdy, Ben. Um, 
I know what uh, closed beta testing and open beta testing is, but you might just want to explain that for our listeners. Right. So you um, effectively start with a with a product that no one wants to touch because it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get it to a point where it's just working and then you share that with a user group of people who have asked for that product or have shown interest in that area. Yep. And you say, look, we want you to be part of our closed beta experiment. It's a dodgy product. It's got bugs in it. If you sign up, you're going to have to live with that, but we want your feedback and we want you to help us drive the improvements to the product. You get that user group to start using the product in its current form. That's closed beta. Mm-hmm. Open beta, it's passed. You know, you've got rid of most of the bugs, but you're not confident that it's that you can warrant that it's going to do everything it's supposed to do. So you put it into an open beta. So you allow more and more people to come in and start using it and providing more and more feedback. And then once it, the open beta has got to a point where it's working well, then it becomes it becomes part of the f- the whole product. Finished, complete, public product. Yep. 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 Great. And now another word from our sponsor. Incoming transmission. Hi, it's Ben again from WebBuzz, the growth marketing agency. I mentioned earlier in the show how we've developed a buy now, pay later digital marketing solution for small businesses. If you want to grow but cash flow is holding you back, WebBuzz offers you a way to invest in marketing with no interest and nothing to pay for up to three months. It's a simple five-step process and here's how it works. Number one, book a video meeting with our team. Two, choose a digital marketing package. Three, apply online for funding. Four, get approved. Five, start your campaign with $0 to pay up front. You can use it for lead generation, content, branding, SEO, or social media campaigns. Our buy now, pay later digital marketing is just the thing you need to get sales flowing again. So get that life is good feeling back in your business. Go to webbuzz.com.au slash bnpl. That's webbuzz.com.au slash BNPL and download a free info pack to learn more. So the problem we set out to solve in this episode was product planning, how to develop your idea into a real thing people can actually buy. Our product design experts, Carrie Peters from Us2 and Ross Gales from Pollen, reveal the theory behind effective product planning and why it's such an important step for all businesses to take. And we've also heard some fascinating real-life stories from our entrepreneur guests, Ben at Employment Hero and Anton at UpBank. I hope their wisdom and insights have given you ideas to crack the code to growth in your own venture. Now, as you might have gathered already, today's episode was extremely nerdy. In the history of Nerds of Business, I don't think the Nerdbot has ever been quite so active. Uh, I know some of the jargon might have been a bit overwhelming at times, but hopefully my guests and I were able to break it down and make it a bit more relatable for you. In any case, for me, there are three really important takeouts from this episode. Number one, talk to your customers. It's amazing how many startups and entrepreneurs fail this step. If you don't devote enough time to get out and talk to enough of the real people who will buy your product or service, you're more likely to fail. So don't fall for the lazy appeal of the easy path. The hard grind of customer interviews and user testing is essential. Number two, aim for product market fit ASAP. The planning phase is where you're really trying to lock down both the core problem you're solving and the commercial viability of your design solution to that problem. If you don't have product market fit, you can iterate further or pivot 
but these delays all suck valuable time and resources and are common killers of promising startups. Number three, keep to first principles. As we heard from Ben at Employment Hero, their initial whiteboard session seven years ago is still informing their product roadmap today. Now that shows not only a clear vision for the problems they're trying to solve, but an unusual level of focus and discipline in executing their product solution. It's no coincidence they've raised $30 million in capital and achieved scale. As we heard at the top of the episode in the Google Glass story, product releases can quickly become derailed by a bunch of seemingly random factors, but they're actually not random at all. If Google had properly considered all the externalities, as Ross called them, they might have foreseen many of the privacy and safety issues that subsequently emerged. And if they had, you have to wonder how things might have turned out differently. Within the whole product development cycle, planning is not as sexy as ideation or the go-to market phase, but it's perhaps the last meaningful chance for you to get the core principles right. And if you care about the future of your company and your people, that's not an opportunity you want to squander. We're coming to the end, but before we go, it's time for our regular segment, Nerd Under Pressure, where a guest has to share one killer hack or tip they recommend for you, our listeners. Let's find out who our Nerd Under Pressure is today. So, uh, Carrie, we now come to a special recurring segment of ours at Nerds of Business called Nerd Under Pressure. Yes, Nerd Under Pressure. Oh, God. Many have come before, oh, many God. have failed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is your moment under the um, uh, the audio spotlight, so to speak, and um, you are the product design and development nerd, mm-hmm. um, and we are asking, Carrie, uh, for one killer hack that you could recommend uh, to our listeners for the product planning phase, and I'm going to give you five seconds thinking time. Okay, um, I think I'm going to go with don't do it alone. I think one of the things that, especially if you're, if you're an entrepreneur and, you're, and you come up with the idea um, by yourself, the tendency is to just let yourself kind of keep going. Um, and I think one of the best things that you can do is get a group of people around you that have different perspectives, that have different skill sets, uh, and do it together because the more uh, perspectives that you have in the room – the stronger the idea will be. The more you'll have already validated things just because you have different people looking at it in the room before you take it to the streets. So thanks for listening to episode 15 of Nerds of Business. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps us climb up the ranks and become more visible to other people just like you. Remember, we want to help as many entrepreneurs and businesses as possible. If you've got a question or some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can engage with us at webbuzz.com.au forward slash nerds. That's webbuzz.com.au forward slash nerds. So feel free to reach out and say hello. I want to thank all of our guests and the team at WebBuzz for helping me put this show together. We'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, which is Prototyping is Fun. How to bring your product or service to life for testing and production. 
Until then, I'm your host, Darren Moffat, and I look forward to nerding out with you next time. Bye for now.